All right, uh, we are going to have a discussion today, and we're going to do things. I, I want to hop right in because uh, I want to give time at the end for us to do something that's going to feel more like a seminar and less like a sermon, probably, because I want you to, to be doing a little bit of work. Um, and, uh, and so, sorry if this isn't as exciting as some, some things. <laughs> Maybe that's arrogant to suggest that there's exciting messages. But anyways, um, but I want you to think about something because we just, we just sang about rest and we've been talking about culture creation and what it means as a church to live as culture creators. You've heard this over and over again all summer long. What does it mean to create a culture by living as a follower of Jesus? We looked at different stories that point out uh, various ways of, of forming culture as disciples, okay? And so we went through all these different stories and, uh, and so I won't recap everything. You can listen to everything if you want online. But I want you to think um, this, this next conversation that we're going to have this morning, I just want you to think about the reality of most of our lives. And I say, unfortunately, the lives of Christ followers and the lives of those who are not Christ followers do not differ in any particularly dramatic way with these experiences. Uh, busyness, bitterness, worry and anxiety, spiritual angst, judgmentalism, constant exhaustion, fear. These are things that go across the board in our human experience, but what do they have in common? They are all marks of a mind and a spirit that is not at rest. We want to look to Jesus today to learn about and to embrace a culture of restfulness. And by rest, I do not mean going on vacation. <laughs> um, we're actually getting ready at 3 a.m. to go on vacation. And let me tell you, it's going to be great. But rest is not how I would describe the last two days of our lives, getting ready to fly to Alaska. So we're going, it's this wonderful family trip uh, that's been planned for a couple years with my parents. Uh, but, but anyways, um, it's going to be a very enjoyable time. Uh, tomorrow will be a 20-hour day for us, including my 12-year-old boys and my 10-year-old almost 10-year-old daughter. So it's not going to exactly be restful. And so I'm not talking about stopping. I'm not talking about getting a day off. I'm not even talking about Sabbath rest, although we are going to talk about that as, a, as an important practice, and we do regularly, but not today very much. I want to talk about a spirit of rest, a way in which we go about our lives that is so deeply grounded and rooted in Jesus and in who we are meant to be, that it changes our day-to-day -day moments, even our busy moments, okay? Uh, but we kind of ha do have to start at the beginning, and, uh, and so for this to end up being more about who we are becoming and less about kind of what we're, what we're doing. Uh, and it's certainly not just about creating like a healthy work-life balance. You can go find a seminar for that. And then I just use the word seminar for later, so that's not helpful. The scriptures are alive in so many ways. In, in uh, some stories in the Old Testament, uh, in addition to being an account of what happened that we can learn from, have also been used by Christian teachers for many, many, many centuries as spiritual metaphors for us, right? So we may not find ourselves like David in the midst of an actual physical battle, but we find ourselves battling against many things that wage war within us, okay? So, <clears throat> so there's a both and with how we in interact with the scriptures in these sorts of ways. But so many of the stories <clears throat> that we are, are given in, in the Old Testament and other places, they become spiritual metaphors about learning to trust God, all right? And so, so at the beginning, our, our creation story, 
you know, you, this is no surprise. The final day is included as a day of God's creation, but it's also included as a day of rest where there is a stopping. There is, there is a ceasing from doing and an increase in being. And it's the first day, by the way, that humans are kind of unleashed on the world, which is really, really important. So there's a story there that is being communicated that humans are supposed to, if they are living well with God as God's creatures, they're supposed to start from a place of rootedness and restfulness. Okay? <clears throat> now, obviously, as the time goes by, <coughs> excuse me one second. <coughs> See if that helps. As the time goes by, that doesn't work out so well, right? Eventually, God's people end up enslaved in Egypt for many years. <clears throat> and eventually, as you know, Moses comes and becomes the rescuer and leads God's people out of oppression and slavery, right? And by the way, I should not have to remind you, but in, in the world of slavery, there is no rest. To be controlled, to be owned, to be oppressed by somebody else, there is no rest. It doesn't matter if you're sitting still, there is no deep soul rest, okay? And so, um, so the, the God's people go out and, and they enter into the desert, and in the midst of the desert, they're given these commands, right? And one of the commandments is this new thing or it's a, it's a harsher version of what had been a part of some of their traditions. But remember the Sabbath day. Remember the seventh day of rest and keep it holy. And the reason that it was supposed to be remembered and the reason that it's such a harsh command is that to live as slaves for all of this time with no rest required that God said, listen, never again will you be defined by a lack of rest. Never again should you be a person who is not able to be deeply, deeply grounded? That is inhuman, and I am restoring your humanness to you, and I'm going to make sure that you do it by putting it in one of the major laws of the time, which is great. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And as with any law, it becomes misused, and it takes a turn in a direction that's unhelpful, okay? And so like all laws, they become rigid, and the spirit gets lost, the point was never a rule, the point was a trusting, right? It was about learning to stop with the intensity of having to do, do, do all the time and more moving toward God faithfully directing us. And trust like that changes things. It changes how we look at, at life. But the, Israels, the Israelites struggled to understand this trust dynamic, and we do too today. And so there's so much struggle to do everything and solve everything in our own power. So when we are talking about a spirit of rest, what we're talking about is a spirit of deeper trust. In Isaiah uh, chapter 30, uh, Isaiah is giving a message to God's people, and God's people are constantly embroiled in conflict. They are oppressing other people, we've just learned. Um, they are, are deceitful. They are constantly engaged in war. And, and here's, here's what we get in the message of Isaiah coming with the Spirit of God and saying, listen, friends, and Isaiah does this over and over and over again, in repentance and rest, in turning toward God, thank you so much, Henry, <laughs> in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. It goes on to say, you say, no, we will flee on horses when there is fear. And I want you to, to put the lens on that I invited you to put the lens on earlier about this being a, a, a working metaphor for our lives. No, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. 
You said we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. He said the faster you run, the faster the people that you're running from are going to chase you down. You're not learning to trust me in the deeper ways. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you will all flee away till you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop or a banner on a hill. Like you're left just alone, waving in the wind. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. God's not going anywhere. The invitation is still to trust. For the Lord is a God of justice. In the Old Testament, when you read justice, you should put a slash beside it and say mercy. We think of justice as like God, like um, often punishing the evildoer. Not the understanding of justice in the Old Testament. Otherwise, I say this over and over again, David cries out after his sin with Bathsheba, David cries out for God's justice (laughs) because justice means mercy in in this context. That's what the word means. We've just interpreted it, um, that word in a certain way as the years have gone on. So because God is a God of justice, of, of mercy, blessed are those who wait for him. Okay, blessed are those who wait for him. See, This is an ongoing battle of learning what trust looks like. And in our world, I am convinced that this whole history of the Israelite people and the challenge of learning what it looks like to trust God, Sabbath meant you're allowed to stop working and you can trust that God will fill in the gaps. In fact, you must learn that or else you will begin to think that you are completely self-sufficient. And so, so this, this happened, and then the, the history goes on, and we know in the time of Jesus that the Sabbath had become a horrible ritual, right? Um, I, I don't mean a horrible ritual. It had become horribly ritualistic. It was a beautiful ritual, okay, get that right, but very ritualistic, okay, to the point that, I, I, you know, again, if you spit on the ground on a Sabbath day and, and there was dust on the ground, it was considered plowing because your spit moved the dirt. This is real, folks, Okay? And so this is, this is the world that Jesus enters into. That is not a world of actively helping you trust God. That's a world of trying to follow all the right rules. Okay? That does not create a spirit of restfulness. It doesn't create a spirit of trust. Certainly not in us. So people just didn't understand what rest in God looks like until Jesus. Um, and when Jesus comes onto the scene, maybe that's why both Mark and Luke make a note that Jesus begins his public ministry on a Sabbath day. On the day of rest, Jesus begins his ministry of healing, of of caring for people, of speaking the truth, proclaiming what he's come to do, all right? And and this this is really, really crucial. It's subtle, but it's undeniable. Jesus came to become a new place of rest, not to reinforce the Sabbath, but to become Sabbath. And that changes how we look at all of this. He brought a new spirit into the thing, okay? A Sabbath rest for its people. So Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, they pointed the early church to a new trust and a new freedom that changed their reality forever. And so what you get is you get that kind of groundedness popping up over and over again. Paul is really brilliant at describing this um, in various times in his ministry, the deep kind of spirit that they are intended to walk through life with, sometimes in the midst of suffering, sometimes through other things. I find it interesting this... this uh, uh, in his letter to the, the church at Thessalonica, he's, he's talking about all of these, um, these various challenges with living, living the, Christian, the Christian life or a life after Jesus. And he actually is talking about loving others for a little while. And then he says, continue to do that. And then he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. 
And then he goes on and talks about minding, minding your own business, which um, is a really interesting encouragement that sometimes we need to hear, um, and working with our hands. But, but I, I find it interesting because Paul was anything but quiet. Like Paul standing in front of groups and proclaiming, speaking up in Athens like we talked about a few weeks ago, this is not a man that's quiet. So what's, what's, what's this getting at here? And, and so I, I went and did a little bit of a, of a fun, fun dive to this, uh, there we go, to this word, um, which is something like that, Hezekiah. Um, and and that, that word, biblically, it means the silence or peacefulness, specifically peace that represents freedom from war after a battle, after finally the conflict has come to rest and you are on the other side of a difficult struggle. It's that kind of a peace. Okay, so let's look at the way Paul is using it, because there are times that Paul uses battle imagery to talk about our struggle, you know, um, with spiritual forces, and Jesus is talked about as in, with, with imagery of this, like defeating death, right? That's a battle image. I'm not usually a big one for battle imagery, but it's there throughout the scripture, and when it's put in the right context, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the deeper powers of death and destruction and sin. Jesus becomes one who does that battle. Jesus defeats death, conquers it, right? Wins the battle against sin and separation and, and uh, destruction. So what that means is we are on the other side of that battle. And what does it mean to understand that we are on the other side of a battle that has defeated death, that has defeated the powers of separation, ultimately? Jesus has, has made peace. We're on the other side of the greatest battle in history. And so the idea to lead a quiet life is talking about a life that is grounded in peace. Doesn't mean that you never speak up. You just can't possibly read that if you read the rest of Paul's, <laughs> Paul's, Paul's words or, or the early church's actions, right? They're very bold. So it means that we begin to live our lives with conviction of every single day that we are on this side of the ultimate battle. All right, a life characterized in the deep places by peace, by an unhurried hurried stillness with God that sets our direction. A life not characterized by distractions or frenetic activity all the time. Uh, so I want to talk about that spirit. I mentioned I'm not particularly focused on, on Sabbath practices today. I'm focused on what a Sabbath of spirit or a, a, a rest a spirit type of rest that we go about our days looks like. Um, so we're going to do, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to shift to what is going to probably feel like more of a seminar uh, for a little bit here. And I'm going to give you nine different characteristics. And you are not intended by any stretch to remember these in any way. I'm going to give you nine characteristics and I'm going to see if maybe God stirs one of them to be of profound importance in your life. And these are characteristics of what their practices that define a culture of rest. I want you to imagine what a culture of rest might look like if we embody it as a community, if we created that, if we, if we interacted with a spirit of deep rest in who Jesus is, in what Jesus has done, if Sunday mornings were truly a place of rest for you, if you didn't have to dress up, and I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally, right? Because you knew that you could be at peace in this place and be loved. What about a, a culture of rest with, when you are uh, in each other's homes, 
an experience of, of true community, of rest, if serving together was free and light and not full of obligations, and if we gave off that sense to every single person who we met as we laid down our lives to follow Jesus. Just imagine the beauty in that image. So, what we're going to do is I'm going to toss these out, we're going to go through them, and then we're going to give you a little half sheet and give you a chance to do an audit, a personal audit on your own spirit of rest, because I want today to be really practical. I, I, I would rather you walk away saying, yeah, here's, here's one way that I think I'd like to kind of lean into that and put this, into, put this area of discipleship into my life, rather than like, that was a really inspiring talk. What was it about? <sighs> Give me a second. And you know you've said that. You know you've said it because you said it to me. I'm like, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying, that was a great, great talk. I really appreciate it. I mean, wait, uh, shoot, what was it that you talked about again? I understand that. We pastors, we're not idiots. We know, that, we know that most of the time nobody remembers what we talk about, but they may remember how we talk about it. That's what I remember as a kid. I can't tell you anything about my mentor was a pastor. I can't tell you anything about his messages. I can tell you about the spirit he set him in, though. And that goes way beyond ministry. That goes beyond into our daily lives. All right, that's a freebie. Here we go. Culture of restfulness takes place when we practice some of you are going to love this. Sorry about the lighting, washing it out. Number one, emotional honesty. All right? A culture of restfulness begins to take place when, number one, we practice emotional honesty. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And yet we somehow have a lot of trouble being honest about how weary and burdened we sometimes are. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. No, you're not. And I get it that not everybody deserves our emotional honesty. I don't have the capacity to say that to everyone. But some people need to. Some people have got to be in our lives where, and, and I would say even beyond family members, because it's a heavy burden if your family is the only one who you can be emotionally honest with. But, but to, to, to move into this idea of, how are you? You know, I'm sad and I'm tired, but God is okay with that. Because Jesus said that when we're, sad and tired, we can come to him. Because Jesus said he didn't come for those who are healthy, but those who have an understanding that they're sick and they need it. They need him. So you know what? Today I feel a little down. Today I feel exhausted. Today I'm overwhelmed. But God's okay with that. That's a part of a culture of a spirit of rest where when we feel that exhaustion, we know that it's okay and we don't have to fight against it. We know that God wants to meet us in those moments. So it's important. Um, there's the verse that I just, uh, I just mentioned. Uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a message. I, I fear that we struggle with this as, as disciples sometimes and we don't give that off to the people around us. The second thing, uh, a culture of restfulness takes place when we practice a clarified identity. And, and this, here's, here's something that's really interesting. A clarified identity is about who we are and not what we do. Um, a few, I don't know, a month or two ago, uh, I was talking with Denise Levering, and Denise, I didn't get her permission for this, but I hope she's okay with it, because it has nothing to do with her. Denise was saying that she was exploring on Ancestry.com her backstory, okay? And she said it was a little bit frustrating because all she found out about her family members was what they did, but she couldn't figure out what they were like. So they, they traveled to here. They did this. They did this. You get glimpses of the actions, but she said, I wanted to know who they were. 
And, and, and it left me feeling short. And, and, and isn't it interesting that, that the temptation is to be defined by what you do, to think that that's it, to know that those are probably the things that if you accomplish something, if you start something big, yeah, those are the things that people will write about one day or that your, you know, your pictures will, will show or whatever. And yet at the, at the exact same time, a life of discipleship is about becoming somebody, not about achieving something. And that the people that we become among, <laughs> that's where our power and legacy often lies. You know, those of us who have kids, it's seeking to love our kids or our spouse or the people that we work with in such a way that reveals the heart of God, the, the things that we're called to do right now in the world with our neighbors, whatever that looks like. And when we know that our identity is more important than who we are, is not about what we achieve, but about who we are as being um, children that are created in God's image, right? How great is the love the Father's lavished on us that we get to be called sons and daughters of God because that's who we are. This, this kind of thing, it helps us walk around not feeling like we need to end the day by accomplishing a lot in order to be okay. Because if you think, if you walk around through life and all you know is that you need to do more, you will never have a spirit of rest and it will drive people around you away because it's very hard to be with someone who only knows drivenness. And so a culture of rest means understanding that we have things to do and that we have things that we don't need to do, but regardless, we are loved and we are children of God no matter what happens, and that actually propels us to do things. So it's very, very important. So another, another culture, um, another practice for a culture of, of restfulness is living with eternity in mind. It changes our day-to-day -day groundedness when we live with eternity in mind. Uh, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, Paul's writing, and he's talking about how they are just struggling big time. And he said, but we're not losing heart. He says, though we're outwardly wasting away, like they are suffering, they're being, they're being chased, they're, they're you know, dealing with all this hardship, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light, momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory, which outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what's seen, on not what is seen, but what's unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but unseen is eternal. And then he says, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He, he compares, he says, you know, our, our bodies are this, this, this tent, but God is creating a building and actually we believe that, you know, God is going to restore all things and renew our bodies as we saw in, in the resurrected Jesus. But what an image that Paul says, hey, listen, I'm struggling, you know. Some of you, if you're dealing with health issues or, um, or uh, any, any number of other things that make you just feel weak and frail, it's really, really hard to have any sense of groundedness and peace. And I hear, like, Please know that I, I say this with every bit of compassion, but it's still possible, friends. That's not to put more pressure on you. But if you're dealing with that, it's still possible to have this, this overriding sense of God's peace and rest, even in the midst of pain. Because guess what? There's something even more beautiful coming. And it's for you too. Okay. Let's keep moving on. All right, next, next one. Number four, culture of restfulness takes place when we practice becoming comfortable with stillness. These are not in any particular order, by the way. Uh, in, in the 23rd Psalm, uh, 
David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, and he makes two comments. Number one, he makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. Those are both areas where you can just imagine David is alone and learning to be okay with stillness and letting his mind and his thoughts wander. Danish uh, theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard I don't know if you've ever heard his name before, but he once said, if I were allowed to prescribe just one remedy for all the ills of the modern world, I would prescribe silence. Learning to be still enough to become self-aware and God-aware takes a lot of work, but it changes us, especially, especially in North America where we just fly around all the time and we put earbuds in when we have a gap. You know, like, learning to embrace stillness will change the rootedness of our lives. We will learn what it looks like to find contentment in Jesus and in the slow, long walk of obedience that is discipleship. A long walk in the same direction, Eugene Peterson once wrote. A long obedience in the same direction, I'm sorry. I better not mess that one up. That's one of my favorite phrases. A long obedience in the same direction. Okay, Um, number five. Re, whoops, there it is. Number five is redefining success. A culture of restfulness happens when we begin to redefine success. And again, we're going back to Paul on this one. I love it. Paul is writing to, to Timothy, and this is a generational handoff. Paul is saying, Paul, Paul is doing his own version of John the Baptist saying, I must become less. It's time for you to step into what God's called you to do. And so he talks about not letting people look down on him because uh, he's young and stuff like this. But he also says, Essentially, my time is fading. Like, oh wait, uh, what's that make me think of? Uh, Mufasa. Sun will set on my time. You know, um, and rise with yours. And so, so but here's what he says. Look at this. Paul has accomplished maybe more than any Christian. And Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus founded the movement. Paul accomplished more than possibly any other Christian because of the movement that he helped facilitate in history. And here's what he says, though. At the end, he says, I fought the good fight. He doesn't say, I've won it. He says, I've finished the race. He doesn't say, I was the first place. And he says, I've kept the faith. Those, the things that Paul values, this is giving me chills here, the things that Paul values the most are not about the accomplishments, they're about the faithfulness. The accomplishments come and go, and we leave results up to God. But Paul's way of describing his entire life is a long faithfulness. I long for that so much. In my own life, so much of my struggle has been, am I accomplishing enough? And Paul says, you know what? You know why I have peace? You know why I'm so deeply grounded? You know why I can even suffer with a spirit of rest and contentment? It's because I've just continued to do my best to be faithful. I've just continued to do my best to be faithful. It's, it's profound. It's profound. Doesn't that fill you with a sense of peace? A relief that the pressure is off? Your job is faithfulness. That's, that's success. That's success. <clears throat> so once we redefine success, we can walk around grounded better. 
Number six is the assertiveness to say yes and no. This is a bit, a bit like number two in some ways, right? The, this is just that when we trust that the pressure is off, we can live at peace with what is ours to do and with what are, is not ours to do. We can be okay with saying no, and we can be okay with saying yes. And we can do both of them, stepping into it with a sense of peace and a sense of our own limits. Okay? And so if you feel guilty about saying no to somebody, even though it's something that you don't feel is probably the best use of your time and energy, even if it's a good thing, it's not what you, stir, you feel God moving you to, and yet you know you're going to let somebody down, so you say yes anyways, like that, is not a, that, that will not create a spirit of restfulness in you. Okay? Now there are times where we do lay our lives down. This isn't about selfishness. It's about security in being able to actually embrace our limits. And this is totally connected to the next one. This is a big deal. So number seven is releasing unfair expectations of others. All right? And, and unfair expectations of others is when we assume that nobody will ever fall short. We give nobody space for mistakes, especially when it affects us negatively. Or when we don't think that there will ever be conflict in healthy relationships, right? So if there's conflict, like all of a sudden it's a crisis, instead of, of course, conflict comes in relationships. This is part of life. We work through it. We walk through it. Um, attitudes of judgment toward other people, specifically judgment toward other people who haven't chosen to follow Jesus, and we're judging them for the things that they're not doing that we would say are Jesus things? That's nuts. Paul even forbids it, but we'll get into that later. We can talk after the message if you want. He's like, by the way, I'm not talking about these people outside of the church. I'm talking about you guys. You guys need to get your hearts right. Um, okay, so, so releasing unfair expectations of others is crucial because we can just walk around with this critical spirit or this spirit of other people constantly letting us down, or whatever the case might be, and that's connected to our own identity, it's connected to the assertiveness of saying yes and no, but it gives other people <laughs> permission to do the same thing. Um, it's okay if others choose to live differently than we do. We can still walk forward in love and freedom. Uh, number eight, here we go, now we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. A culture of restfulness takes place when we practice a genuine experience of grace. Or I would say maybe not practice, but when we have a genuine experience of grace. Um, I love, I love John's letter when he is writing to the church. And this is a letter that was spread out to a number of different churches. And, uh, and John writes, this is John the disciple of Jesus when he was very young, now he's old or older. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. When we are afraid that we're not good enough, when we are captured by shame or by guilt, when we are, are feeling paralyzed for whatever reason, the reassurance is, guess what? God knows your heart, God's bigger than it, and God is going to wipe away the condemnation. So get used to living lighter. Get used to living more freely. If you are seeking after Jesus, if you are in Christ, even your heart can't condemn you. God is bigger than that. And so, so once we experience the love and the grace of God and know that that's available, we can move beyond the mistakes that we make. We can move beyond the struggles and we can be restored day after day over and over again. And then finally, I feel like this is going back to the, uh, the same thing at the beginning. 
uh, a ninth point of a culture of restfulness is an ongoing relationship with Jesus as our source of rest. I mentioned this again uh, at the beginning, that Jesus begins his ministry on the Sabbath, that Jesus says, come to me to find rest, all right? That, that over and over, Jesus says, hey, you guys are looking to the scriptures, he says in the book of John, you're searching the scriptures because you think you'll find eternal life. Eternal life is ultimate rest with God. And he said, they're pointing to me, and you're not getting it. You're not getting it, friends. And so, so Jesus becomes the fullest embodiment of what it means to be at rest. So if you only think that you can find rest by laying on the couch on a day off, then you're missing out on the fullest experience of what God wants to offer you. And by the way, laying on a couch on a day off is a great thing. Like, by all means. I prefer to do more active stuff most of the time. But not every member of my family does. And I've had to learn to embrace how rest looks different for all of us. Um, but, but there is just such beauty that walking with the presence of Jesus means walking in an ongoing spirit of Sabbath. We can be at rest through any storm, through any heartache, even the difficulties of life as we work to be people of compassion and justice. It's possible. Come to me and I will give you rest. One of um, a friend, she moved away, but she was a part of Life Path for a while in the early years, and she asked me once, she was a fairly, uh, and she was moving deeper in her faith at the time. She had somewhat of a Christian background, but she said, why are Christians the least free people I've ever met? She said, I don't understand it. I'm looking into the Gospels. Why are Christians the least free? Why are they so worried all the time? Because I, I just don't understand how this matches. And there are things that ought to break our hearts, but boy, we certainly should still be able to live a life of freedom, and people ought to be able to pick up on that, because we've been set free. All right, 